can open the Word of God to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. This is the fourth of our uh, series, fourth study in our Advent series together. It's the final one. And the aim of our study over this Advent season has been to examine what does Christmas have to do with presence? Uh, not with the T-S, but with the C-E. That's the presence of God. What does Christmas have to do with God's manifest presence? We said, of course, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. But many times in Scripture, where the Bible is talking about the presence of God, it's talking about him manifesting that presence. Talking about him showing that presence in some marvelous way to his creation. And so we've been tracing this theme of God's manifest presence from creation all the way to the incarnation. This is really what it all comes down to. And so last week, we were in Isaiah chapter 7, and we saw the most remarkable prophecy in the Bible, it has to be, is that God predicted he would manifest himself in the most remarkable of ways. That is, that he would enter his creation through the womb of a virgin. That he would come to us in the form of a humble child, a child who would be called the mighty God. This child, Emmanuel, is Jesus Christ, of course. Well, today we're looking at the fulfillment of that prophecy, and we'll aim to do so by examining John's account of the Christmas story, his, his account of Jesus' incarnate presence. Our text this morning, then, is John chapter 1, verse 14. Hope you have that there. There the Word of God says, And the Word became flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. That's the word of our Lord. Let's begin with prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for what we just read. But Father, I have to confess to you that I do not even fully appreciate what it is that is here. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive, and fully appreciate the text that is before us. We concede that this Christmas theme is something that is quite familiar to many of us. We pray, Father, that we would not approach it with any less reverence, with any less awe. We pray that you would fill us with wonder. I pray that you would empower your servant as he brings your word and Empower every listener here to hear exactly what you desire to tell them. Father, if there be anybody in our midst who doesn't know your son in, in the way in which you intend him to be known, Lord, we pray that you would draw them into that saving relationship. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone has aptly said that Christmas is like a birthday party. It's like a birthday party with presents, you have the treats, the music, and the singing, and the so on. There's all the celebration. It's a party. But it's too often a party where the birthday boy himself is not present. What I'm saying is, tragically for most Americans, the Christmas holiday is like a birthday party that they celebrate without Jesus being present. And what's ironic about that is it's like everyone somehow forgot to invite Jesus to his own party. How interesting. And given the heart 
and center of Christmas is nothing else but the presence of God with us. It is Jesus showing up. That is most ironic that people celebrate Christmas without Jesus. Christmas is about the presence of God manifested Jesus' birth. Now, those of us who love Jesus, we truly love the true story of Christmas, don't we? And uh, we love the, the story we call to mind every year at this time, the details surrounding Christ's birth, including Mary and Joseph, and the story of the manger. We imagine it filled with animals, and we think of the shepherds and the angels who give that incredible announcement to them, and we think also of the wise men, perhaps, that came, then also guided by this natal star. And all those are great details. All this makes a great story. They are true details, of course. But once again, we must remember that all these things that I've just mentioned, including the Virgin Mary herself, are only secondary details to the heart of Christmas. They're secondary details. They are peripheral. They are true details, but they're secondary to what Christmas is ultimately about because the heart and center of what Christmas is about is what John is striking at here in our text this morning. It is really that God's presence is manifest to us at Jesus' birth. That God has come to earth in the birth of a child. And so today we're going to be studying Jesus' incarnate presence. And we won't be examining the more colorful accounts. I love Matthew and Luke's account of the Christmas story. It is wonderful. And we looked at, I believe last year we were in Luke's account. And the year before that we were in Matthew's. But this year we're going to be in John's account of the Christmas story. And you know what's interesting about John? He spares us the details. He boils down Christmas to a heavenly perspective. And he just gives you the basic heart and center of what Christmas is about. I know we've said that there are many instances in the scriptures... And throughout history, by the way, in, in revivals and in great awakenings where God has manifested his presence to human beings, to sinners just like us. God has done that. He is continuing to manifest his presence in remarkable ways to sinners like us. We've seen several of those instances in our Advent series where God has showed himself, sometimes in bodily form, to human beings. But this morning, I want you to see that Jesus' incarnation, what we're going to see this morning, Jesus' incarnation, what we might call Jesus' Christmas presence. Jesus' Christmas presence is God's greatest manifestation of his presence. Well, what was it about the incarnation that makes it more spectacular than even God showing up at Sinai? Or God showing up in the tabernacle? Or his glory filling the holiest of holies in the temple? What is it about the incarnation that makes it most remarkable, most special of all? Well, I want to show you three reasons why Jesus' incarnate presence is God's greatest manifestation to us. First, Jesus' incarnation means God bridged heaven and earth for us. God bridged heaven and earth for us. And I want to show you that from this statement in our text. And the word became flesh. I know those are just a few words there, but this statement is so packed with meaning. And we're going to have to spend our most of our time then unwrapping it. For instance, yes, the word became flesh, okay, but what or who is the word? What or who is meant by the word? 
While John doesn't actually mention Jesus' name here down until verse 17 in John chapter 1, it's very clear if you read verses 1 through 18, he's talking about Jesus. This is his way of introducing you to the main character of his gospel, Jesus Christ. That's why the good news is good. Jesus is called the word of life in 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. Actually in Revelation 19, 13, it says of Jesus, his name is called the word of God. So I'm just saying, the word here is Jesus Christ. It's John's way, his title, to refer to the man Jesus. Well, then why does John describe Jesus as the word? Why use this title? It may sound strange to us, but in John's time, this word actually had a very special usage. And that was more evident to the Greek reader because the Greek word John uses here is the word logos. And logos was widely in use at the time that John was writing this. Logos was a term that Greek philosophers have been using for centuries to describe the most ultimate explanation, the, the, the most basic principle behind the universe. In ancient Greek philosophy, the logos was regarded as the ultimate principle behind the coherence and the unity and the symmetry in all things. It was the object, the ultimate quintessential object of the philosopher's quest, what they wanted to understand. But the logos was regarded by Greeks as impersonal, and it was certainly not tangible. That was unthinkable to them. And so this was a loaded term. Why did John use it? Apparently, he wants us to recognize that Jesus himself is the greatest mystery behind the universe. It could be that John is using this term because he wants us to understand that Jesus is the object that all the wise men in this world, all the philosophers, have been looking for. Jesus is the fundamental ground of reality. Of course, calling Jesus the Word should also, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, bring something else to mind. And what is that? Well, over 100 times in the Old Testament, we read the phrase, and the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. And what follows is how God reveals himself in the word. The word is the primary means by which God reveals himself to sinners like us in the Bible. It's the primary way God revealed himself. And so, just as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 indicates... John saying Jesus Christ is himself, himself, his incarnation on the earth. It is God's greatest message to humanity. Well, of course, the Old Testament also tells us that it was by the word that God brought all creation into being. If you know the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1, what do we read? There's this formula. God said, and it happened. God spoke, and it was. That is... Pretty much the story of creation. God spoke and it was. There's no greater power in the universe than the word of God. Isaiah 55, 11 tells us that God's word will accomplish whatever purpose he sends it to accomplish. So the word represents perhaps God's reason behind all the universe. The principle that holds it everything together. Or as the Old Testament would emphasize, his revelation to us and his power by which he accomplishes all that he does. But once to appreciate again, the significance of this statement, the word became flesh. We really need to notice how John describes the word. Look down at John chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was with God. 
What a remarkable and profound statement. The preposition that John uses here in a Greek to describe this connection between the word and God describes a uniquely face-to-face sort of interaction. He's saying the word was face-to-face with God in the beginning. Intimately connected with God. And, and if you read in the context here, God is specifically referring to the Father. Interesting, okay? In this case, the word was with God. The word was intimately face-to-face with the Father from the beginning. And this would indicate to us that the Word is distinct from the Father. The Word is not the same as God the Father. Well, naturally, we want to refer then, the Word is not God, right? But John disallows this inference with his next statement. What's he say? And the Word was God. The Word was with God, distinct from God, but the Word was God. John's saying the word is distinct from the Father, and yet he is of the same quality in essence as God. This coincides with the orthodox statement of the Trinity, where Jesus is said to share the same divine essence with the Father as co-equally God, though the Father and the Son remain distinct persons. They're not the same. They share the same essence, the same being as God, but distinct persons in the triune Godhead. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Colossians 2.9 says, in Jesus, all, all the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Philippians 2.6 says of Jesus that he exists in the form of God. And he, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So you get the picture? Jesus, the Word, is God. And if there was any doubt as to what it means that the Word is God, John also says the Word is eternal. Look at verse 2. He says, he was in the beginning with God. Repeating that phrase, in the beginning. Which is not just any beginning. This is the beginning of all beginnings. This is the beginning of everything. This is the beginning of time itself. And of course, to say Jesus existed before the creation of time is to say that Jesus is timeless. Jesus is eternal. He existed eternally, timelessly. According to John, the Word is God. The Word is eternal. And the Word is creator. Look at verse 3. All things came into being through him. Now, if you stop right there, some Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Jehovah's false witnesses, right, they will interject that, well, this is only because Jesus was first created by the Father, and then he in turn created everything else. Heard that before from them? Well, that's very interesting because John's next statement disallows that kind of nonsense. Verse 3 says, All things came into being through him and, keep reading, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John's follow-up statement might sound a bit redundant, but the whole point of it is that Jesus does not belong to the category of that which has come into being. Everything created. Everything that's not God has come into being, correct? Well, Jesus doesn't belong to that category. In fact, everything that that has come into being, everything in that category has come into being through him. So Jesus can only belong to the category of things which have always existed, which is a category God alone occupies. John will go on to say the word, who is God, eternal, and creator, is also life and light. And uh, All right, then. So we have the word of God here in this text. Eternal, creator, life, 
light. Now, back to verse 14. John says, that word and the word, that word became flesh. The word became flesh. What does it mean, the word became flesh? Well, there's a divine mystery here. But Christians have long used this term, incarnation. If you know Spanish, you know the word carne means meat. Have you ever had chili con carne? It's chili with meat. Well, when God came into this world incarnate, it means that God came into this world with a body of meat. He came with flesh and blood. This does not mean that Jesus was any less God when he came to earth. John's not saying he set aside his deity. He's no longer God and now he's man. Like he's flipping off one and flipping on the other. No, when the scriptures tell us the word became flesh, they're saying that Jesus added to himself humanity. He didn't become any less God. He wasn't God to any less degree. But he's adding to his nature humanity. In this way, the unchangeable God that we know, he could experience all the pain and the suffering and the change that you and I experience on this earth. How could he do that? With respect to this human nature that he's taking upon himself. This humanity. Well, we might ask, but how could this be? How could the word become flesh? How could this happen? You know, that's a great question. Uh, this is the very question, in a sense, the Virgin Mary asked of the angel Gabriel when he appeared to her and told her that you're going to bear the Most High. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since... I am a virgin, Luke 1.34. But Gabriel didn't reply, uh, you know, that's a good question. I didn't think about that. Or, wow, yeah, I, we might have a problem here, Michael. You know, we might have a problem here. We didn't see this coming. How is this going to happen? No. What did, what did angel Gabriel say? He said in Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. You know, the word translated there, power, is the Greek word dunamis. It, it describes God's supernatural power, his enablement. It's a word sometimes translated in the New Testament as miracle. The miraculous power of God. That's how this could happen. That's a simple truth. The God who created everything from nothing has the ability to do all his holy will. You believe that? You're going to stand in the way and say there's something God can't do. God can't, if he wanted to enter this world, he couldn't really do that, really? Who are we to say that? God can do all his holy will, including he has the ability to enter his creation through a virgin's womb. The real question you see is not how for God. The real question is why? Why did the word become flesh? God became flesh, we see in the scriptures, to live the life that we could not. God became flesh to live the life we could not. That's what Galatians chapter 4 tells us. Have you kept the law of God perfectly this morning? Everybody working on the law of God? All the commands in the Bible? Like, have you read this book? Are you measuring up to God? You surely have not. God says all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. But Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So that he might redeem those who were under the law, and we might add, did not keep it, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That's why Jesus came. Because we have all failed to fulfill God's law, God became flesh and lived under the law to fulfill the law on our behalf. His incarnation made this possible. By becoming flesh, Jesus fulfilled the law for everyone who believes. His incarnation meant living the life that you could never live. Are you righteous? You're surely not. But Jesus is righteous. And by coming to earth, he lived out righteousness. He fulfilled the law for you if you will believe on him. Jesus came to live the life we could not. But Jesus also became flesh to die the death we deserve. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, we're told the angel Gabriel appears to Joseph. And he appears to Joseph and, who's engaged to Mary at the time. And Gabriel tells Joseph, Matthew 1.21... That Mary, she will bear a son. And you, because it was the father's responsibility to name the child. He said, you will name the child. You will call his name Jesus. It means Jehovah saves. God is salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. Well, how on earth would Jesus do this? How could he save us from sins that we've committed? There are sins, not his, right? Well, by offering his own body. As an atonement for sin. That's why later in John chapter 1. If you come down to verse 29. You'll see that John the Baptist. The forerunner of Jesus Christ said. When he looked at Jesus. The Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. By becoming flesh. Jesus was preparing to offer himself. As an atonement for our sin. Dying the death we deserved. Jesus became flesh. How could God do that? That's his eternal workings. There are a lot of things we don't understand how God can do what God does. He's God, we're not. The real question we should ask is why? And the Bible answers that. Jesus came. God became flesh to live the life that you could never live and to die the death that you deserved. Why? Why did God do that? Well, there's only one reason for that, my friend. God truly loves humanity. He truly loves humanity. He loves you. He wants to make a way of salvation for you. You know, Muslims who have long detested the doctrine of the incarnation have asked whether a God who can become a man cannot also become a dog. Because they say this is such a terrible thing that you would say about God, that he would become a man. But such a question only demonstrates one's failure to appreciate God's view of humanity. God doesn't view humanity as dogs, as beasts. When God created humanity, according to the Bible, he did so in his own image and likeness. And he gave man a soul that could never die. If God viewed us as nothing but beasts, he would have written us off a long time ago to damnation. And he would have started all over again. But you see, that's not God's view of humanity. Because the God who hates sin is a God who entered this world to redeem sinners. God enters our world by taking upon himself the very form of humanity in order to redeem humanity. So yes, the word became flesh because God truly loves the world. 
And in this small statement, the word became flesh. We have God then bridging heaven and earth for us. Do you see that? As God, he is infinite and sinless. And as man, Jesus had now a body of flesh and blood that he could offer in our place as an atonement for our sin. Jesus embodied life on earth. His righteous life and substitutional death would build a bridge from earth back to heaven. Do you remember in our study now a couple of weeks ago, the cherubim and all that in the Garden of Eden where man sinned, God placed a flaming cherubim there in, in the garden to block the way to the tree of life. Remember the veil of smoke on Mount Sinai? God's people couldn't just approach into his presence or they would die. Remember the veil that separated the holy place from the holiest of holies. You couldn't just go into God's presence. Why? Because sin has blocked our way to God. We've been severed, cut off from God. But you see, since Jesus came, this is the whole point. The temple veil was torn in two. Jesus came to make a way back into God's presence. That we could come back to the Lord. That we could be reconciled. That heaven could be joined back to earth. God's presence is open for any and all who will believe. And so it's no wonder, do you see it? It's no wonder there's no end to heresies that attack this doctrine. You know how important this is? There are so many heresies you can read about where people attack the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. Why is that? Well, the devil knows that if you don't believe Jesus is God, if you don't believe that this morning, my friend, if you don't believe Jesus is truly God, you can't trust him to do what only God can do. That is to truly forgive your sins and to make you as holy as he is holy. Only God can do that. And the devil knows if you don't believe Jesus was truly human, then you can't trust his sacrifice for your sin was truly substitutional. Namely, that he lived and died in your place. Because only a true human could do that for another human being. The word becoming Flesh, God becoming flesh matters this morning. It matters, not just Christmas, but all year round. Because the incarnation is God's way of bridging heaven and earth. That's my first point here. I'm not saying the incarnation was everything itself. The incarnation itself was not everything for your salvation. But the incarnation was everything that made Jesus' atonement for our sin possible. But there's more. Look at verse 14 again. And the word became flesh... And dwelt among us. Now we've done most of the heavy lifting, okay, already in our study. But look at this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. A second reason Jesus' Christmas presence is God's greatest manifestation to us. Is that it proves God intends to permanently dwell with us. Permanently dwell with us. When we read John saying the word dwelt among us, we recognize this is a past tense verb. He's talking about something that happened. John is saying, of course, there was a time when Jesus dwelt among us. God dwelt among us. The Greek word for dwelt there is skenao. It means to tabernacle, to pitch a tent. And any Jew familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, would immediately recognize John is comparing what Jesus is doing to what God was doing with his people in the Old Testament. He's saying... Jesus is now tabernacling among his people, dwelling among his people in a tent of skin and bones. He's dwelling among his people in a body of flesh. You remember the tabernacle. You remember that tent of meaning where God would dwell with his people. 
That's happening now in Jesus. Well, we've heard this story before. Okay, yeah, Jesus came to dwell among us. But this is worth seriously thinking about a little bit more this Christmas. According to People's Magazine, this past year, Beyonce and Jay-Z dropped $200 million for a massive Malibu mansion on the Pacific Coast. Overlooking the Pacific Ocean in California, and maybe you think that was you know, a lot of money to spend in a house, but it was on, it was on sale. $200 million was on sale. It was marked originally at $295 million, and they got a discount, I guess. Okay, so all of us have been in this city. We've seen different places in this city. Just imagine with me some of those places around the city that don't smell so nice. You know, they smell like the garbage has been out too long. Some of those places I'm thinking about where, you know, it kind of looks like people are preparing for war. They got the barbed wire strung out. There's pit bulls everywhere. Okay, imagining those places. South Bronx, East Harlem. All right. Just imagine a billionaire, someone of the status of Beyonce or Jay-Z, some major multi-million billion dollar celebrity moving in to places like that and saying, I'm going to take up residence, I'm going to pitch my tent, as it were, there. Well, they wouldn't be a billionaire for long. <laughs> and uh, you couldn't be if you're going to dwell among that kind of a crowd. But yeah, you'd think that kind of thing just never could happen in our world. And it's true, celebrities don't just do things like that. But John says this, he says, God, God, we just looked at this word who is God, the creator, the one who created all things. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This God became flesh and dwelt among us. That is for the purpose of being near to us. God leaves heaven's estate, heaven's glories, to come and dwell on stinking, run-down, war-ravaged earth. And he does that because he wants to be near to you. He wants to be near to you and I. This is truly remarkable, that God will stoop where a man will not. But this was only a temporary arrangement, right, Pastor? Because, um, you know, Jesus would eventually go back to heaven. Well, remember the, the tabernacle? That was a temporary arrangement. Remember the temple? That was a temporary arrangement, of course. And Jesus, when he came to earth, yeah, he was crucified, resurrected, and ascended. So it wasn't, this wasn't permanent, right? Well, we see the wonder of the incarnation is that it shows us God intends to permanently dwell with us. How do we know that? I'll just mention three reasons. There's more. But first, we've already discussed that Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Jesus didn't come to just simply drop in for a visit. He was coming to offer himself for our sins for the purpose of permanently dwelling with us. Secondly, if you study this word skenao, that's this word translated to dwell elsewhere in the New Testament, you'll find it only appears five times in all the New Testament. The four other times are in the book of Revelation. And I want to read one of those for you here. Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21.3, we read, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell, that's the same word, skenao. He, he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. 
This is a permanent deal. This is the presence of God dwelling forever with his people. And this is the end of the story. So yes, Jesus dwelling among us at his, as his, at his incarnation, it wasn't the end. This is just the beginning of an eternal story. And thirdly, when Jesus took upon himself humanity, this wasn't a temporary arrangement. We know that because Jesus took upon himself a permanent human nature. Do we realize that? When the Bible says the word became flesh. This wasn't a passing fad. This means Jesus took on a human body. And when Jesus eventually would die for our sins, he didn't leave that body in the grave, my friend. He raised that body to newness of life. So that Philippians 3, 20 and 21 could say that our citizenship is in heaven. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that is. From which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity, now don't miss it, with the body of his glory. You know, when you die and stand before the Lord, you're going to see Jesus Christ. And Jesus has a body, a glorious body. Yes, God intends to permanently dwell with us, and this is proven by the fact the Son of God has added to his nature a permanent, glorious state of humanity. God did this, Why? Because he doesn't want you to be alone. He doesn't want you to dwell outside of him. Outside of his glory, he wants to dwell with you. And because we are created to be embodied beings, God took on himself an embodied estate so that he could keep us company. Isn't that amazing? That's our God. Remember the tabernacle, that temporary dwelling place, the temple, that eventually God's presence departed from because of Israel's sins that we've seen? That wasn't a permanent arrangement. Well, the incarnate presence of Jesus Christ on earth was a distinctly permanent deal. And I just add that even after Jesus ascended to the Father, he sent us the Holy Spirit as a down payment proof to say, I'm coming back. I'm coming back bodily and I'm going to receive you to myself to dwell among you forever. Jesus' incarnate presence was not a temporary arrangement but an eternal one. Okay, so we have here the fact that Jesus' incarnation means God bridges heaven and earth and... He does that for us, and God intends to permanently dwell with us. But a third reason that Jesus' Christmas presence is God's greatest manifestation of his presence is that it means God's glory can now be manifest to us. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying, the disciples of our Lord saw his glory. And that's why we have a New Testament. Because people, just like you and me, in our world, saw God in the flesh. And they wrote about it. And they recorded, they were so moved with this glory that they wrote about this glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we've seen God manifesting his glory in our study of his presence in the Old Testament. We've seen God manifesting his glory in the Shekinah glory cloud, right? Where his glory fills the tabernacle. And we read in Exodus chapter 40, what happened? The glory of the Lord filled that place. It was a glory cloud that filled the place. People knew the presence of God is being manifest. What about the temple in, or, or in 1 Kings chapter 8, is it? Where Solomon completes the temple. The glory of the Lord fills the house. The priest couldn't even enter into it. 
Okay. Well, God's glory is this manifestation then of his goodness, his beauty, his splendor, this inapproachable light. It's something that we can't even fully handle. Remember back in Exodus 33 where Moses asked God, he says, show me your glory. And what's God say? He says, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. As sinners, there is just some, something wonderful, something glorious about the, the, the glory of God that we can't even handle. We can't even bear it as sinners. We can't encounter it and live. Nevertheless, if you know that story in Exodus 33, the Lord does put Moses in the cleft of the rock and he covers him and allows his glory to pass by. And then he uncovers Moses and allows him to see, as it were, the afterglow. Just the afterglow of his glorious presence. And you see that? When we realize that, we realize how amazing, how all the more amazing what John is saying here in John 1.14 is. We realize Jesus' incarnate presence is so amazing. The only thing separating God's unspeakable glory from the eyes of all who saw Jesus was this thin veil of his flesh. But surely somebody's thinking, okay, pastor, that's great. That's great for Mary and Joseph. That's great for Peter, James, and John and all who saw Jesus' glory. But we're not able to see Jesus' glory, are we? What about us? How are we going to see Jesus' glory without going back to first century Palestine? Well, here's the good news. Because Jesus has come in the flesh, we too can see his glory. I'm not saying if you visit Bethlehem today, that's, you're going to see Jesus lying in a manger there. No. But Jesus doesn't have to be physically present in order for you to see his glory this morning. You realize many people who were physically present to witness Jesus' earthly ministry still did not believe on him. In fact, some of the towns where Jesus performed the most of his miracles, we could say displayed his glory in such incredible ways, were filled with people that did not believe. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly presence, but they failed to recognize his glory. Don't get me wrong, the most amazing thing about Jesus showing up on earth in Bethlehem is the fact that God is here in the flesh. And the most amazing thing awaiting us in the future is that Jesus bodily returned to earth, that we are awaiting the return of Jesus' physical presence. This all proves physical presence does matter to God. That's true. But just because Jesus isn't physically present on earth doesn't mean that he cannot. It doesn't mean that he will not manifest himself to you even today. That he won't manifest his presence to you. Jesus' incarnation, you see, means that we too can now behold his glory by seeing what Jesus has said and done. It is seeing the life and work of Jesus here in the word of God. As we open God's word, we see God's glory manifest in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled faces, we come to the mirror Uh, This is the mirror of God's word. We behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is actually an advantage for us over those who lived at the time of Christ. Because we can now see the bird's eye view. We have the full picture of Jesus' glory. And when we see his life, what are we seeing? John says we are seeing a life full of grace and truth. This is how Jesus' glory, Jesus' life will change your life. 
Because Jesus' glory is the very glory of God. There isn't anything you need more than to encounter the glory of Jesus in your life. This Christmas, this year, beyond. Yeah, we've heard this Christmas story many times, sure. And we're familiar with the fact that Jesus' birth into this world means that God has bridged heaven and earth. Jesus came to live and die for our salvation. That's true. That's wonderful. We also know it's, it's perhaps quite familiar to us that Jesus came to dwell with us. That he came to provide a, for us a permanent dwelling among us. But probably the most overlooked thing about the incarnation for us is that Jesus' birth isn't about simply making a way for you to get to heaven or a way for you to permanently dwell with him. Jesus' birth is also about changing your present life. Do you believe that? That Jesus came. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is about today. It's about changing your life today. It's about how you live today. It's about changing you today. What you need this Christmas is something money can't buy, but something that has everything to do with Jesus coming to earth. Now, I don't know about you, but when people ask me sometimes, what do you want for Christmas? You know, Anne asked me, what do you want for Christmas? I don't know. Sometimes I just don't know, right? Anybody else like that? I don't know what I, what I want for Christmas. I just want you, right? That's the right, right thing to say. Um, of course, right? We just want the presence of those we love. Okay. So here is something you need for Christmas. Anybody out there don't know what you need for Christmas? Maybe you do think you know what you need for Christmas. Here's what God says you need for Christmas. Grace and truth. I was looking at this even just yesterday again and saying, why grace and truth? When we we behold his glory, John says, his glory was as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why does he just use that? Grace and truth. So simple, but why those words? Because you know what it is you need? You know what it is every sinner needs? Grace and truth. You know what will change your life this morning? Grace and truth. Grace is God's unmerited favor on our lives, including his forgiving, transforming work. If you have the grace of God in your life, you'd be like Jesus Christ. (laughs) Other people will look at you and their lives would be changed. You'd be living the gospel. You need the grace of God. That's the power of God in your life. Yes, you don't deserve it. It's his unmerited favor, his unmerited work on your life. Boy, we need that. What about truth? Truth is the way things really are, isn't it? It's the way things really are, the way God sees things. And this would include God's instructions for how we are to live. You got problems in your life? You know what you need? Truth. That's the way to fix it. God knows how to fix your life, how to change your life for the good with grace and truth. Where do we get it? How do we get it? Jesus Christ. God has come in the flesh and he's full of grace and truth. There's plenty to go around. Santa Claus got nothing on Jesus, right? And so, what's this all got to do with Jesus' incarnation? By entering our world in a human body, God has displayed his amazing grace and truth in Jesus Christ. And you know, this is the only reason, the only reason that we can see Jesus' glory today in God's word is because Jesus came. Jesus came. And John. And Peter and James and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and others saw his glory. And you know what? They wrote about it. And because they saw his glory and they wrote about his glory, we can now read about his glory too. We can see his glory too in the word of God. And when you do, my friend, you'll realize it's full of grace and truth. And it will change your life. 
Jesus' incarnation, his Christmas presence is God's greatest manifestation of his presence. Maybe this Christmas you're lonely. Maybe this is a lonely season for you. You might feel lonely. But what God would want you to know from John chapter 1 is that you're not alone. You're not alone because our Emmanuel has come. And he desires to dwell with you and to live in constant communion with you. Whatever your situation this holiday season, the presence, C-E, you really need is the presence of this Savior born for you. Maybe you're uh, doubting that God would actually want to meet with you this Christmas. Because of sin, because of guilt in your, in your life, or who you are in the past, or I just don't measure up to God. Well, that's all true, but you need to remember this Christmas that the, the presence of the God who left heaven, he did that for you. He left heaven to occupy a manger so that he could meet with you. And are you wondering how on earth you're ever going to be able to approach into God's holy presence? Maybe again, just the sins of this past week. There's something you've done. There's something you're guilty. Maybe something you've not told anybody about. And you're thinking, how can I come into the presence of God with this sin and guilt? Well, you need to remember something. You need to remember the Christmas presence of God. God who became flesh in order to become your way of access into his holy presence. Jesus is your way into the presence of God because he is God and he is the God-man. And the next time you're simply at a loss to say, well, I just, I just don't know what I need in life. I don't know where I am in life. I don't know where to go. I don't even know what I need this Christmas. You need to remember this. You need to remember the Christmas presence of God. God who came to show you he's always full of grace and truth. He's only a call away. And my friend, if, if you're here and you say, I don't know if I have eternal life. I don't know if I died today. I don't know if I would be with the Lord. Well, John chapter 1, verse 12, just two verses before we, what we looked at here out of John 1, 14, says this. As many as received him, that's the word, that's Jesus Christ. As many as received him, to them God gives the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, receiving Jesus. That's the greatest decision you can make with your life, giving your life to Christ, giving over the throne of your life, to Jesus is the greatest thing you can do because if you do that, God will receive you forever into his kingdom. Jesus' incarnate presence is all the reason then that we need to have a Merry Christmas this year. Let's pray.